would you describe yourself? If someone were to characterize your life, how do you think they would describe you? How did you get to where you are and who you have become? Was it the fact that you had good parents who followed the precepts of Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it? Were you reared in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4? Through your life, how have your friends impacted who have you become? For instance, Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, Walk with wise men and you'll be wise, but the companions of fools will be destroyed. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You see, the truth is you and I have become, for the most part, who we have been trained to be. Many of us have had training by our parents. We've had training by good teachers, and that has impacted where we are today. However, after we have become adults, many of us have allowed ourselves to be influenced by others. I thought about this week as I thought about starting a new year with this congregation that I've spent more than half my life as the preacher here. And uh, how this congregation has had a tremendous impact on who I am and how I live. As you and I think about the life of Moses, Moses became who he was because of the things that Moses went through. And God brought him to a particular place where he is described in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3 that the man Moses was... Very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. If you're reading the King James or American Standard, you'll notice the word meekness there. He was meeker than any man on the face of the earth. Moses got that way because of the training that God provided him. You know, last Sunday's lesson, we looked at the book of Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And we saw Moses as he served God and made a choice to serve him. And God was preparing him to be the leader of his people. And the first 40 years of his life was the training of the formal Egyptian teaching. However, when he became 40 years of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to share ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. And yet God also knew that he needed more training and so he provided the practical on-the-job training of being a shepherd for the next 40 years of his life. What I thought was interesting as you study the life of Moses, that when Moses was 40, he believed that he was ready to lead God's people, but he wasn't ready. Now, 40 years later, after having served as a shepherd, he believes, I'm not ready. And God said, you are ready. This morning, what I want us to do is to look at the book of Exodus, chapters 3 and 4. And I want us to look at four different things that are going to be contained in these two chapters. 
The first one is esteem. How does God want to be viewed? How does God want to be held in the eyes of those who come before him? And it's to be held in esteem. We want to look second of all at the emancipation of God's people. They were freed as slaves from Egypt. Number three, to look at the excuses that Moses provided for not doing the job that God called him to do. And then finally, a very important, over, often overlooked aspect, and that is the expectation that God had of Moses before he actually started the work. Brother Ronnie read to us just a few moments ago from the book of Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm not going to reread those verses because I want to move on into the lesson. But I want you to notice that he is shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Shepherding someone else's sheep sometimes is important before you and I shepherd our own sheep. You see, when you go to the book of Luke, chapter 16 and verse 12... You can get the idea and and visualize in your mind, here's a man who has sheep and he is shepherding or herding those sheep. And Jesus said, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Often you and I have to serve under someone else before we're ready to take the responsibility ourselves. Here is Moses, 80 years of age, and he's shepherding someone else's sheep. He is called to go to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's at the southern point of the Sinai Peninsula between what is today Israel and Egypt. A few years ago when we were there, I took a picture of that barren mountain. There's not much on it. And uh, I can imagine an 80-year-old Moses climbing that mountain. When he got there, he saw a burning bush. The bush was burning, but the bush was not consumed. The text tells us the angel of the Lord spoke to him, and it was the voice of God, verses 4 and 6. I took a picture of a bush, which happens in this case to be an olive tree that's at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he is told not to come near or not to come nigh because the place where he is standing is holy ground. Anytime somebody comes into the presence of God, the situation is holy. In fact, I am somewhat disturbed many times by how people act in services. You say, because... We're in the very presence of God. We're on holy ground. If you look and see further, whenever we are in the presence of God, we offer God, we are expected to provide to God our highest esteem. You know, when you come in the presence of certain people, you shouldn't talk. You shouldn't be disrespectful. In Psalms 89 and verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and held in reverence by all those who are around him. Moses, you are standing on holy ground. 
Give God the glory. Take your shoes off because you are in God's presence. We move second of all to the emancipation. If you look with me now, we're going to read verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, And I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The first thing you have to observe is God is aware of their situation. Too many times we have this idea that here I am, I'm in a difficult situation in life and God doesn't know what's going on in my life. Oh, but he does. In that great, wonderful passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, during the middle of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, he looks at people who are worrying about what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, where they're going to live. And he says to him in verse 32, For after all these things a Gentile seek, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God saw the oppression of his people. He knew their suffering. He knew what the Egyptians were doing to them. And thus God had an emancipation proclamation. Well, you see, many of us, when we use those words, we think about what President Abraham Lincoln did back in the 19th century. We think about the freeing of the slaves. But you see, this is an emancipation proclamation like no other. This is God speaking from heaven and saying, these are my people and I want them released. There was the deliverance from suffering. God did not want his people to suffer. But then there was the fulfillment of a promise the fulfillment that his people would come to that promised land. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and will bring you out of this land to a land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You're going to get to go back to the promised land. And Hebrews 11, verse 22 said that by faith Moses when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. Now, if you will, let's focus for just a few minutes on chapter 3. I want us to begin with verse 11, and uh, it really goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 17. And Moses there will make five excuses as to why he cannot do what God has called him to do. 
God has said, I want my people to be taken back to the promised land. And Moses, you're the man I've chosen to do the job. And Moses will say, God, who am I to do this? Number two, what shall I say when I go to the people and tell them you've called me to do this? Number three, he will say, but suppose these people won't believe me. What am I going to do then? Number four, Lord, I'm not eloquent. I cannot speak well enough to do this job. And then finally he said, please send somebody else. Don't choose me. Now for just a few minutes, let's look at those five excuses. Verse 11 says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Lord, why did you choose me? Perhaps he could say, My time has passed. I'm an old man now. For those of you who are 80, and there are several of you, for those of you who are nearing 80, I want you to imagine God saying, this is the job I've called you to do. Most of us would say, I'm past my prime, Lord. I, I'm not able to do that job. That's too big of a job for me to do now. You think about Moses. He's gone from power and prestige to poverty. You say, really? Oh, yes, he was reared having the best, the treasures of Egypt. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Now he's grazing some other man's sheep. What power do I have now? I don't have the influence back in Egypt. I don't have the physical prowess. I don't have the money. Lord, why have you chosen me? I am insignificant and I'm incapable. Has anyone ever asked you to step up to a task and you feel like, I can't do that? Why did you ask me? There's so many more people more talented than I am. Here's God's answer, chapter 3, verse 12. I will certainly be with you. That ought to be enough. If God says, I'll help take care of you, Moses, that's who you are. You're the man I call for the job. Number two, let's look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Lord, you have given me a job, and when I get there, what am I going to say to our people? What is his name is essentially they're asking for authority from the true God. Who are you representing? Do you remember Peter and John in Acts 3 when they healed a man at the gate called Beautiful? The message of it goes on into Acts 4 and even into Acts 5. In Acts 4 they ask Peter and John the question, by what name or by what authority have you done these things? When Moses arrives, Moses said, what am I going to say when they say, who sent you? Well, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. But God answers by his name. I am 
that I am. It's pronounced as we say it, if you're the older way was Jehovah, the newer way is Yahweh. It's taking the vowels because there's all, putting them with the consonants that are there. It was a name that was so sacred that the Jewish people would not even pronounce it. It describes God's self-existence. I am that I am. I don't depend on anybody else. I am is the present tense. That means I was, I am now, and I always will be. And I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, chapter 6, verse 3. But Moses is already presupposing in his mind that when he arrives, the question is going to be, what if they won't believe me? In chapter 4, verse 1, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they will say, The Lord has not appeared to you. You've got to remember what happened when Moses left. We studied about this last week in chapter 2, verse 14. After he tried to break up a, a conflict between two Hebrews, the response was, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? In other words, Moses, who gave you this role? Moses was the kind of person that we would imagine today. What if the Lord spoke to you and said, I've got a job for you to do? Lord, they're not going to believe me. What am I going to say? Suppose they won't believe. But God said, okay, I'm going to give you three proofs. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, and I'm just going to summarize this so for time's sake. The rod is going to become a serpent. And then the hand, he's going to put it in. It's going to become leprous and then become clean again. And then water turned to blood. It's at this point I know Moses is a man of faith. Because when the Lord tells him to throw his staff down, it becomes a serpent. I can understand Moses doing that, but when the Lord tells him to take it by its tail and pick it up again, that's when I know he's got faith. You can imagine that. But the fourth excuse is, Lord, I'm not eloquent. Look at chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am of a slow speech and a slow tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have not I the Lord? You think about the slow speech and a slow tongue. What he's saying is, I have a difficulty expressing what's in my mind. I understand that. There are times when I'm sitting there prior to coming up here, I know exactly what I'm going to say. And then when I walk in the pulpit, I'm like, it's not coming out the way I want it to come out. Your mind and your mouth don't seem to cooperate. And I can see Moses saying, Lord, that's the way I've always been, before and even now. Jeremiah 1 and verse 6. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. I don't have that talent. I don't have that ability. He's highlighting his inadequacy. The truth is, 
God knows every one of us, our abilities and our inadequacies. He knows what you have a talent for and what you do not have a talent for. And God knows the talent that you may not have now that can be developed. But I will remind you, and this is extremely important, eloquence is not the most important thing. I'll repeat that. Eloquence is not the most important thing. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 6, Paul says, Even though I am untrained in spirit, speech, yet I am not in knowledge. I may not know, be able to speak everything perfectly, but I know what I know. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he said, Our faith, our preaching, he says, Well, not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What changes people's lives is not how eloquent the preacher or the teacher is. What changes people's lives is the power that's in the gospel, Romans 1 and verse 16. Number five, let's look at verse 13. But he said, O Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Or I like the way the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. Please pick someone else. Now, up to this point, God was addressing Moses' concerns, excuses, if you will. But the text says, now God's angry. Why do you suppose God's angry? If you and I feel that we genuinely may not have a talent or an ability in some area, that's one thing. But when we get to the point where we say, God, just get somebody else. I don't want to do it. Have you ever asked someone, please find somebody else? Brother Don will be up here in just a little while talking about our education program. And I know from time to time he comes to people and he says, let me talk to you just a little bit. I'd like for you to teach a class. I, I'm not eloquent, Don. I can't do this. I can't do that. Please find somebody else. Why do you do that? That's the question. Why? Most of us because we don't want to. We've got other things we want to do. Well, God's answer to Moses was, Aaron will assist you. And I will tell you, if you tell Don, Don, can you find somebody? i got somebody who will help you. I know that trick will work. Verses 14 through 16, he says, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well. And look, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. He's going to be glad to help you, Moses. And I know he can speak well. God provides whatever is necessary for one to accomplish the mission which he sends a person upon. Now for just a few minutes, let's talk about this last part, the expectation. You know, it would be very easy studying Exodus chapters 3 and 4 and to talk about the excuses of Moses and miss a very significant lesson in these last few verses. 
Moses comes and says he returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Moses, he says to Moses, Go in peace. Now I want you to uh, follow along with me here now, and I'm going to skip the next part about the firstborn son. I want to come to verse 24. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, and that's God, let him go. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. You see, Jethro had offered his encouragement. Moses, go. The job that God has given you to do, go do that. Pharaoh will say no. I know what he's going to do. And it's going to require the death of the firstborn to turn him around. But now here's the issue. Gershom was Moses' firstborn son. He had not been circumcised according to the law. According to the law of Genesis 17, he said, Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a sign. And if you don't, according to verse 14, you're going to cut that person off. Here's the point. Here's the lesson. It's expected that if one is going to command other people to keep God's law, that you ought to keep it yourself. Here Moses is called to do a great job. And yet Moses has not obeyed God himself. There is an expectation that if I am going to deliver God's commands to you, that God expects me to live just exactly like he called me to live. That's an important lesson for every Christian. Very quickly, I want to run through just very short lessons Moses went from the palace to the pasture. Sometimes great leaders have to learn to serve before they can truly be effective. If Moses had started when he was at 40 years of age, he would have thought, I'm on the high, I am the one, but he needed to be taught some humility. And so God let him tend sheep for 40 years. In John 13... Jesus adorned a towel around him and washed the disciples' feet. And what he taught them was, in verse 16, he said, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. I want you to learn, if I've washed your feet, you ought to serve others as well. Number two, approaching God means that we regard God as holy. In Leviticus 1 10, 1 through 3, you have Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire. Verse 3, and by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before the people, I must be glorified. When you and I assemble together, if our services do not glorify and honor God, then we're not doing our job. And Ecclesiastes 5.1 says, when 
Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Number three, when God sets a person free, they are truly free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Number four, excuses are often given because a person doesn't want to obey. I could spend a lot of time in Luke 14, verses 16 through 24, about those who made excuses when they were invited to a supper and they said, no, I I can't, I can't come. And what ends up happening is in verse 24, Jesus said, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper. Number five, there's a difference between true humility and a pseudo-humility. Colossians 2, verses 18 and 23, talks about a false humility. Number six, God can do great things with uneducated people. Now the truth is, Moses wasn't uneducated. Moses had received a great education. But he thought, I just can't do this. Can God use you? Can God use me? Absolutely. Acts 4 verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Let me tell you, I've seen many times godly men and godly women who maybe only went to the fifth or sixth grade, opened their Bible, and with great eloquence emphasized the importance of God's Word. Moses had a great mission to accomplish for God, and he needed meekness. He needed humility to do that job. To do that, though, means that you sometimes have to walk by faith and not by sight. So this morning... Are you willing to be submissive to God? Don't put out all these excuses. No, I can't do it right now. I I don't have the ability. We're going to sing the invitation song. And if you've not yet obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't say, I'm an old man or I'm an old woman now. I can't do it. Don't say, I don't have the talent and the ability to do what it calls upon me to do. No. If you believe Jesus Christ is God's Son, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized this morning. And if you are one of God's servants and you look at your life and say, hey, I have really messed up. It's time for me to be restored. Come as together we stand and sing.